Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Leslie Corbley back to the program. She is a privacy policy analyst with Libertas Institute in Lehigh, Utah, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Leslie, great to catch up with you once again. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So... I've been seeing some some rumblings here lately that have been very disturbing to me, and you have written an excellent article that confirms that to that sick feeling in my stomach is probably justified, and that is the lines between social media and government appear to have become quite blurry here of late. Can you set the stage for us and tell us what that's all about? Sure. So they are the lines are quite blurry, as litigation documents uh, attest, and as well as actually the, there was a interview or not an interview, a news story that came out from the intercept, a pretty groundbreaking report that not only spoke to the documents that have come out through litigation, but also had information from DHS uh, whistleblowers that again confirmed the extent to or not the extent to which, but that the government was definitely um, colluding with and, and coercing social media companies regarding their content moderation policies. So I know early on, especially with, uh, for instance, the, the COVID response, you had medical professionals, and I'm going to refer to the Great Barrington Declaration, which, which you refer to a couple of the doctors, epidemiologists involved in that. Right from the beginning, you know, the, there was a very concerted effort to shut them down, discredit them. Oh, well, they're just, you know, they're just troublemakers. But I, I don't know that many people, myself included, were willing to believe that government would have a hand in that because, I mean, the First Amendment pretty explicitly says you're not supposed to do that. And yet it's appearing that uh, the Department of Homeland Security of all agencies may have had a hand in in helping to, uh, as you put it, moderate, you know, information out there to make sure that we get the one true version of what's what's going on. In other words, the official narrative. Sure. So there is just a disturbing pattern of collaboration between tech giants and government agents. And to some degree, I'm sure that's voluntary. You know, Silicon Valley leans heavily left. Um, there may be ideological reasons that they may align and, and think that it's in the best interest of the public to have information quashed or controlled. The problem, again, being that once you have you had not just DHS, you had the CDC, the White House, I believe uh, to date and this could be subject to change given that litigation is ongoing. You're looking at at least approximately 100 government agents <laughs> being involved in uh, in these efforts to really control the, the information flow that is available to the American public. And that's really disturbing. So you mentioned the Great Barrington Declaration and the epidemiologists who were involved in drafting that declaration. I would, I mean, I don't, there's no data or polling that I'm aware of on this, on this issue, but I would be shocked if even half the country is aware of that declaration. And that was quite intentional. Like you mentioned, uh, Dr. Fauci and others in the federal government were trying to stymie the reach of that message, right? Um, Because they viewed it as French, right? And that's really troubling because you can't really get to the truth of the matter if you're not able to have a free flow of information um, and questions that can arise from all perspectives, right? Stymieing information is really a classic red flag that, you know, tyranny is, is incoming, you don't want to see that. It's really disturbing. Uh, and if, of course, as it relates to this, what I mentioned is blurry lines between these social media company and the government is that just imagine that the story had broken 2012, 
I think it's a good way to help people really frame what's really happening here. You know, imagine in 2012, the government had the Obama administration even had tried to quash information about a sensitive political or social issue. Right. That would have been seen and and had done so by by going directly to companies and saying, you need to you need to control the flow of this information or take it back further and imagine that, you know, a government agency had been involved in this kind of behavior or had, had, say, told a cable provider, not even like CNN, but a cable provider, you need to limit the reach of this CNN story. Right. You need to not air that. This is essentially what we have going on. Right. Is an attempt to to quash the ability of information to just freely flow. And while, of course, there's poor information that's amplified online, that's really not a new problem. (laughs) We've kind of been aware of this, I think, since the birth of the Internet, that unfortunately not, you know, inaccurate, false, misleading, you know, information can also flow. But um, quashing information doesn't stop that. And in a lot of ways, it encourages it. Wow. Well, what's what has come out in the course? I know this lawsuit uh, has has been uh, filed in a couple of states, and it sounds like a a, a federal judge has said, "Okay, we're gonna, we're going to allow the lawsuit to proceed." What have we learned so far that uh, that our listeners might find surprising, maybe even shocking? Sure. I mean, we found out a lot so far. <laughs> like, I, like I mentioned earlier, there's the pattern of collaboration. So this pattern of collaboration includes a lot of things. For instance, constant communication between government agencies to assist in managing COVID messaging. So this uh, included allowing the government, like the emails between the government and the companies, you know, were written really as if they were co- between coworkers. With, with um, companies saying, hey, if you want information on specific keywords or topics explored, then they would do so sort of at the behest of the government. As I mentioned earlier, there's also, you know, a lot of government actors involved, roughly 100 to, to date that we're aware of that were involved in this effort. Uh, and then, you know, there's the asymmetrical power dynamic that's very troubling, right, where government can retaliate or uh, put pressure on companies to do as they to do their bidding. And then, you know, there were also very public statements that are going on at the same time, which I think is really important for your listeners to understand that it's not as if these emails were the only thing happening. You know, you had former press secretary Jen Psaki um, discussing the collaborative relationship uh, and Biden officials, you know, saying things like we need to turn up the heat on specific accounts, you know, labeling specific accounts as quote unquote, the disinformation dozen Mm. uh, and really pushing this messaging that they need to control misinformation, you know, for the public good. And even more disturbing, I think it's really important for your listeners also to understand this isn't something that was limited to the white house or the CDC that are more civil agencies. You also had, uh, alleged, according to the amended complaint in this lawsuit, uh, the FBI involved. So, you know, there was the famous interview that Mark Zuckerberg gave where he, you know, told Joe Rogan that he was alerted of Russian disinformation. And this stymied the reach of the Hunter Biden laptop story through algorithmic manipulation. Well, in this amended complaint, it's it, it is alleged that other Department of Justice um actors were involved in heavily were heavily involved with communications between government and social media companies, including, and this is a quote, you know, the individual named in the lawsuit, uh, 
quote, bemoaned the fact that there was not a similar level of coordination about censorship between the federal government and social media companies during the 2016 election cycle. Wow. So that's a quote from the amended complaint. So this is really, really troubling, uh, troubling information. It's very, it's clear that the extent is, goes far beyond what was previously known. It's clear that it was deep, pervasive, and a pattern of of government really wanting to put their hands on the scale, really, to determine what American, what information Americans can and cannot consume. And I can't stress enough how much this really does push more misinformation, because when you create an environment of that kind of deep distrust, people will be willing to listen to, frankly, conspiratorial lines of thinking and theories that they never would have entertained before, because they have no basis to trust the information they're consuming. And they're very, very justifiably so, concerned that there's information that's being omitted that's material to making correct determinations about what they see in front of them. So, Leslie, let's let's just suppose that this lawsuit goes through. It is found that, there was, in fact, there really was um, collusion between uh, these, these social media companies and the federal government. How do we go about fixing this problem? What What is the likely fix that can, can put the horse back in its corral, so to speak? Well, there is a bill, I believe, from Rand Paul on this. So there's a couple of bills, efforts trying to really stop government from being able to communicate with companies like this. You need a what I call a wall of separation between corporate and government. Government. If you blend those, you know that's where you get real, real danger for tyranny. I mean, techno fascism is basically what the citizens of China live under. It's not. It's not pretty. It's not. Um, Freedom doesn't flourish there. And and so we'll be watching this lawsuit. And just one last thing for your listeners. Uh, there was an attempt actually to halt the effort to depose certain government officials such as Dr. Fauci. And that was uh, not accepted by the court. So the court said, no, you can't halt these depositions. They're going to occur. You know, uh, plaintiffs are, are able to take uh, to now depose government actors, including Dr. Fauci uh, and Jen Psaki, among others. I believe Jen Psaki, uh, just want to make sure I have the right press secretary that will in fact be deposed. But no, that yeah, they'll right. be looking at, at bringing these individuals under the microscope. And I, so I will be just keep following along because I'm going to be um, certainly publishing more articles as information from this lawsuit continues to come out. Okay, again, we are talking with Leslie Corbley, and we will have a link to her article from The Daily Caller that uh, that will describe exactly what we've been talking about here. Leslie, where can people follow you on this social media? Sure, definitely feel free to follow me at Corbley Leslie on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn, and although the account is not active yet, I will be introducing Rumble as an additional platform for information. So the Rumble account will be the same as Twitter at Corbley Leslie, just to make it easy. So at last name, first name, and follow along as more information will be published soon. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Tyler Curtis back to the program. Tyler's checking in from the great state of Missouri. And uh, Tyler, for people meeting you for the first time, do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I my day job, I work as a loan officer at a community bank here in Missouri. And by night, I write about economics, politics, and current events. Okay, speaking of current events... You have recently written about one that uh, that is of great interest to me, and that is uh, the Jones Act may be on its way out. Now, for most people, that may not register. I don't, I don't expect people to talk about the Jones Act over dinner at night, but for people who haven't heard of it, what exactly is the Jones Act? Where did it come from? What is it supposed to do? 
Yeah, I bet if you ask the average American, they're probably not going to know what you're talking about. Um, in, in, in fairness, it's a pretty obscure law. It's over 100 years old, um, and it is a law that regulates domestic shipping. So um, anything that any goods that are shipped between uh, U.S. ports, so like if you're going to ship something from New Orleans to Boston, this is the law that regulates that type of thing. Uh, its official name is the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. It's called Jones Act because it was introduced by a senator named Wesley Jones. Um, signed into law after World War I by President Woodrow Wilson, so that should throw up a big red flag right there, uh, even if you don't know anything else about the law. Um, and it's, uh, it's a law that requires anything that is shipped between two domestic ports to be carried on a ship made in the United States, flagged in the United States, owned by American citizens, and crewed by mostly American crew members. So if that wow. sounds restrictive to you, it is. <laughs> it sounds like they should sing the national anthem before they actually dock. I mean, it's... Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Let's just go <laughs> So what what was the yeah, it, what was the act supposed to accomplish? Was this was this supposed to protect American jobs, protect you know uh, the, the American economic might of you know that was that was growing during the 1920s? Yeah, so it had it had a, a twofold uh, goal. One was like you said, protect American jobs and the American shipping industry, and the second was uh, to protect national security. So remember, this law is passed just after the end of World War One. Um, during the war, America was instrumental in shipping goods and supplies uh, to Britain and France and Europe uh, in their war effort against Germany. Uh, if you remember from your high school history class, Germany was very aggressive in attacking uh, shipping uh, from the United States uh, with the use of submarines. Uh, so it was really important during the war to have a reliable cargo fleet. And so after the war, uh, people in the United States thought, well, we need to make sure that if we have a, another war, we need to have a reliable fleet of cargo vessels to carry supplies overseas. Um, so they tried to make sure that America's domestic uh, manufacturing uh, industry was protected against foreign competition. Uh, so that's one of the goals of the law. And then, of course, the other one is just your basic protectionist stuff that we need to protect American jobs and, and things like that. Now, I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time, but we are currently experiencing some unintended consequences of the Jones Act today. Tell me about those. That's right. Well, because it, it's so restrictive and, and limits uh, what can be shipped and where it can be shipped and things like that, uh, it makes uh, transporting goods so much more expensive. Uh, one uh, one recent estimate found that shipping um, like oil or uh, liquefied natural gas costs about three times as much to ship on a Jones Act eligible ship as it would uh, an, an alternative ship. So it makes things way more expensive. Uh, and because it costs so much to ship things between domestic ports, um, people look for alternatives like uh, shipping them on trains or trucks. Uh, which is less reliable. Uh, trucks and trains tend to crash more often. Uh, they take longer. Um, and it's not it's not really clear how much that costs the average American consumer. Estimates vary, uh, but it can cost, you know, the, uh, America as a whole can cost us anywhere between six to $19 billion a year. So it's 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 pretty substantial. And who is leading the movement to repeal the Jones Act? 
it's a diverse group of people, um, Republicans, Democrats. Uh, I'd probably say more Republicans are more likely to support its repeal. Um, but there were actually several Democratic congressmen that uh, sent a letter to President Biden not too long ago, and that included um, some pretty hardcore progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, it, it, she has been uh, fairly vocal about her support for repealing the law, especially in the wake of Hurricane Fiona that, that hit Puerto Rico. Uh, so um, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty even across the aisle. Interesting. And this puts her alongside people like Senator Mike Lee, you know, who's Mike uh, Lee, Mike Lee, who's been a, a consistent opponent of the Jones Act for well over 10 years. Uh, you'd have like maverick uh, conservatives like the late Senator John McCain, who was uh, despite his nas- national security bona fides. I mean, this is a person that consistently supported uh, military spending and, and was uh, definitely a person that uh, liked to pose himself as being more on the side of nas- national security. Uh, prioritizing that over other issues, but he was also a very consistent opponent of the Jones Act and several times uh, proposed new laws to reform the Jones Act or repeal it completely. Wow. So, I I know the lobbyists, of course, as you mentioned, are, are fighting against it. Are there people in government who find it in their interest to keep this in in place like is there is there a regulatory angle that uh, you know government employees are like hey hey those are our jobs you're talking about? Yeah, there's a the Cato Institute, which does a lot of really good work on on international trade issues and the Jones in, in particular. Uh, they have called uh, they have come out and said that there's actually a lot of collusion between the government and the maritime industry lobby. Uh, and the reason that they say that is because there is there is an advisory committee called the Marine Transportation System National Advisory Committee, and that's a big mouthful. Uh, but basically, this is a quasi government committee that's made up of leaders from the maritime industry, people that uh, sir, they'll, they'll gain by the Jones Act remaining in place. Uh, and so they have a direct line of communication with government and uh, regulators, um, and they routinely communicate with each other about how to keep the Jones Act in place, how to uh, push back on their opposition. Um, so it's a very uh, firmly entrenched uh, lobbying group. So let's, for, for the sake of people wondering, why, why is protectionism not a good idea? I mean, Donald Trump, you know, that was something that kind of endeared him to many of his supporters. Well, he's protecting American jobs. He's protecting American industry. But at its heart, what, what does it cost us when we allow protectionist policies to be put in place and, and stay in place like the Jones Act? Well, uh, there's a lot of unseen costs, so that's the big thing. If, if you've ever read the the great French economist Frederick Bastiat, he really uh, he really liked to emphasize the seen versus the unseen. Um, and so, what we see when we pass protectionist laws like the Jones Act, we get to see the jobs that are saved. We see the American uh, ship manufacturers that get to keep making ships and the crew members that get to keep their jobs, but we don't see the costs of limiting competition. We don't see the jobs that aren't created because we have these really inefficient and onerous regulations in place that prevent new businesses and new jobs from being created. Okay, we've got about one minute left. Um, for for the sake of those who would like to, to see this article, I understand it's going to be published a little bit later this week. Where can people find it? And, and for that matter, um, talk to us a little bit about where they can follow you and, and your work. You've been published in a lot of places. 
Yeah. Uh, well, if they'd like to read my article in full, um, it is scheduled to be up this week at the Washington Examiner. Um, and they can find it on my Twitter page because I'll put it up there after it's published. Uh, so they can follow me on Twitter at Tyler Curtis 42 at T-Y-L-E-R-C-U-R-T-I-S 42. Okay, very good. It's a it's a fascinating article. I'm still just kind of blown away that, you know, the uh, I think it was uh, you mentioned the Oh, the Mercatus Institute and uh, Cato. In the Cato, Cato Institute. Institute accused of treason, <laughs> you know, for wanting to, to repeal. Wow. I mean, somebody really wants to hang on to that policy. Tyler, thank you so much yeah. for being my guest today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Kelsey Grant to the program. She is the research and policy coordinator for a consulting firm that advises oil and gas companies on decarbonization strategies. She's also a Young Voices contributor. And Kelsey, if you want to fill in any of the blanks that I didn't fill in here, tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you, Brian. Um, I mean, you got most of it. I mean, I I work with oil and gas companies. I'm doing really fun and exciting, um, cutting edge work on mitigating um, rising social risks and trying to figure out how to navigate a world where there is increasing and growing pressure to decarbonize and to meet um, these low carbon needs. So it's really exciting um, work and, and um, I love it. I'm looking at an article that you've penned for realclearenergy.org, and the title is Lessons from the Inflation Reduction Act, Revamping Republicans' Climate Strategy. As I read that, I'm reminded, that's right, the, uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act was pretty heavy on a lot of uh, climate policies. Could you walk us through a few of the, the things that were addressed climate-wise within that act? Yeah, so to take a step back, so the IRA, you know, it's the Budget Reconciliation Bill. It invested about over $700 billion in federal investments towards addressing the deficit, lowering healthcare costs, and also climate and energy. Um, about $370 billion of that was towards climate change. And this included a series of low carbon or clean energy tax credits, you know, towards hydrogen, um, carbon capture and sequestration, direct air capture. It also included things like a methane fee. It included um, increased offshore and onshore royalty rates, so increased costs on fossil fuel leasing. Um, it also included a lot of investments towards environmental justice communities. Wow. Now, how does this spell opportunity for Republicans? I know there's a lot about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that Republicans are not happy with, but in terms of climate policy, where does this provide an opportunity for Republicans perhaps to uh, adjust their own bearings? Um, I love the, the use of the word opportunity. I just want to put that in neon lights um, and to continue emphasizing that throughout our discussion. So again, to take a step back, you know, there were some there are some policy provisions within this bill which Republicans have historically been supportive of. You know, like the 45Q carbon um, 
capture and sequestration tax credit. There, Republicans have demonstrated some support um, and friendliness towards provisions and measures like that. But there were provisions that they didn't like, right? So like the methane fee increased um, fossil fuel leasing um, costs. So since the passage of the IRA, Republicans have been very critical of the bill. And in many ways, it's been seen as a, a policy defeat. And so, you know, with that background um, for the IRA and how Republicans responded, I think it's really valuable for any legislator, but also just individuals, how we operate in our day-to-day -day lives, is to take a moment and to reflect and to identify some key lessons learned from the passage of the IRA, which again, contained provisions that Republicans broadly are opposed to. And so when I was reflecting on this, I thought it was quite clear that the most important lesson that Republicans need to learn from this is that if they do not write the terms of climate policy, others are going, are going to write it for them. And that's just another way of saying, if you don't lead, you will be led. And mm -hmm. so I think what happened with the IRA is an invitation for Republicans to really reconsider how they've been approaching climate policy so far and to kind of reflect on, you know, perhaps it's no longer going to serve our most important priorities. I'd be happy to dive into what that approach has been in the past, but um, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, actually, I, you, you had mentioned in your article that they've taken more of a passive, you know, kind of uh, uh, defensive approach to, to climate. What, what has that looked like? Because I'll admit, I've followed some things pretty close, but uh, but Republicans on climate, I, that really hasn't been on my radar screen. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of basically sums it up. You don't hear much about Republicans talking about climate change unless it is criticizing what people on the political left are doing. So they have, for many years, adopted this defensive and oppositional posture towards and the policy in various kinds of forms. I want to give a huge caveat right here. In this last few years, Republicans have also made monumental strides in what I think is the right direction on um, climate change. We've really seen some um, leaders within the Republican Party popping up and giving a really good conservative case for climate action and Republican leadership on this issue, like Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, uh, Representative John Curtis, um, Kevin Senator Kevin Kramer. Um, We've also seen Republicans in engaging. So like I also speak about in my article, like there were a couple bills, you know, the Energy Act of 2020 and the infrastructure bill, you know, Republicans were productively engaging on these pieces of legislation and lending their ideas on um, low carbon and climate related provisions. And so Republicans have made monumental progress in the last few years, but the mainstream Republican party, if you look at the party as a whole, there isn't a robust comprehensive climate energy platform and I do not think that served them well when they were in mill reconciliation negotiations. And I think it is important for them to reflect on this, especially right now, because today's midterm elections. So what are they going to do post midterm elections when they likely have um, one or two chambers of Congress? How are they gonna make the most of that and use this as an opportunity to advance smart, conservative, and responsible climate solutions. Okay, and I don't want to put you on the spot by asking this, but I really do want to get your opinion, Kelsey. Um, what should guide Republicans in terms of uh, the upper limits of where government should or shouldn't be involved in climate policy? Are there are there such limits? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think there, there are, um, right? good climate policies are going to have to balance all these other different considerations, right? We can't 
solve, we can't reduce our emissions and screw over the economy at the, the same time, right? So we have to have this balance between fiscally, economically responsible policies and ones that effectively reduce our emissions. And this is why I'm so passionate about this because I think Republicans have a lot of ideas and values and good principles that um, would lend well to creating those kinds of solutions. And I think we've seen this with you know, other um, client policies that um, conservatives have actually put forth. So like one example, and it, it might be odd to talk about this at, at this time because of high energy costs, um, but there's a reason why it could be appropriate. Um, Republicans have explored the idea of a modest carbon price, one that is paired with a, a dividend. So there's limitations on how much money, say, the government can keep. So there's kind of that bound. You can all, they also have paired it with regulatory simplification. So you're still limiting, say, the regulatory and bureaucratic arm of, of the government. So there's kind of like these self-checks and balances within elegant policies like a revenue-neutral carbon price. Um, but that's just like one example. So yeah, I do think there are bounds, um, hard to define, but I, it, there should be um, careful considerations in how we balance different priorities. And this is kind of a subjective thing, but again, I'd like to get your take on it. Um, the free market, I know, can provide a lot of solutions, sometimes where government seems more heavy-handed. When it comes from the free market, and especially if it's voluntary, um, it, it seems like it's much more acceptable to people. Um, will the Republicans work better within the free market to, to help you know, uh, persuade people to, to come on board as opposed to what, what seems to have been a much more, um, you will do this or else kind of approach that we get from the Democrats? I think that if Republicans really owned the free market solutions that are available to us, I think they're going to show, just speaking as a young person, a lot of the young people who have been bought into this idea that we need big government regulatory solutions, I think they can show those young people that, hey, these free market solutions are not only just as good, well, much, much better than those solutions that you've been bought into. And in fact, you know what? I mean, study after study after study shows that a free market solution like a, like a modest price on carbon will be more effective than these other you know heavy-handed approaches um, d Democrats and other legislators have um, considered. Um, so absolutely, the free market is the single most, I think, potent and important tool we have in our climate toolbox. All right. Now, I have to ask you this too, because Russia, or not Russia, Europe, Sorry, they're kind of intertwined now with the energy problems in Europe. Europe, in some ways, seems to have painted itself into a bit of a corner in terms of, you know, they, they wanted these, uh, you know, low car lower emissions. They wanted, you know, to reduce carbon. Uh, they have very, very green policies, but it is really coming back to bite them now that there are, you know, energy shortages. Um, is it possible that we could be painting ourselves into a similar corner here in the U.S.? And if so, what, what can we do to avoid that? Well, in terms of, you know, the energy crisis that's going across the world, including in Europe, I wouldn't put all the blame on, on, on green green policies. Mm -hmm. I think they are increasing energy costs in the margin. But we have this whole other thing next door, which is is Russia and geopolitical upheaval. So I just I wouldn't say um, green policies are the reason for that. However, I do think it, it, it calls us and reminds us we need to be very careful as we undergo this energy transition because it will be very messy and we need to be as smart and responsible as possible. And I think that is one other reason why we have to have Republicans at the table helping to guide and support these really important discussions.
Okay, again, we are talking with Kelsey Grant. She is the research and policy coordinator for a consulting firm that advises oil and gas companies on decarbonization strategies. She's also a standout Young Voices contributor. Kelsey, where can people follow you on social media? You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Grant underscore Kelsey. I would love to have you follow me. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome Micah Safeston back to the program. Micah, we've had you on here before, but I know there are people hearing you for the very first time. In addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit more about yourself, who you are and what you do. Sure. So I work for, I actually work for Utah State University right now. Um, I work for the Utah Water Research Laboratory there, and I I do uh, communications and outreach on behalf of the lab. Um, I have a master's degree from the university as well in political science. And then I, I just write on my own about uh, about water issues facing the American West. I write about, I write about other things as well. Um, but that's kind of where my, my background is is in and uh, where my interests lie. And um, so trying to, to get water in the Great Salt Lake and the Colorado River and uh, while also having enough for, for all of us to drink and uh, and to grow our crops and do everything else we need. Boy, you want to talk about water issues, though. You've hit on two of the big ones out west. I mean, I've, the pictures of Lake Powell that I was seeing just a few weeks ago were, were jaw-dropping, but I forget sometimes the Great Salt Lake is, is in a bit of trouble, too. Tell me a little bit about what's the situation going on there with the Great Salt Lake. Yeah, so the Great Salt Lake is a terminal lake, which uh, makes it unique. Um, there's, there's only a handful of lakes like it in the world. And that means that there's no water that runs out of the Great Salt Lake. So the only uh, the only way that, that water leaves the Great Salt Lake is through evaporation. And so that means any pollutants that are in the lake stay there. And so as the water, as, as the lake levels have dropped, it leaves behind those pollutants. And eventually those pollutants um, get into the air as, they, as the lake bed dries. And then wind blows those pollutants into the air and the Great Salt Lake, uh, unlike most other terminal lakes, there's one other lake in Iran that is similar. Uh, but other than that, most terminal lakes are quite remote, but the Great Salt Lake is not. It's right next to, to the, the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, it's right on the Wasatch Front. Most of the state of Utah lives um, within 30 minutes drive of the Great Salt Lake. Wow. And maybe maybe one hour drive of the Great Salt Lake. And... Uh, and so that has the effect of basically putting um, poisonous and toxic chemicals in the air uh, because the lake is drying. And that's a huge problem. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, I've heard that, yeah, as it dries out, you know, the dust that blows, you know, from, from the dry lake bed can be very toxic. What are some of the chemicals or some of the, the, the waste products that, that are left, uh, you know, to be carried by the wind? As far as I'm aware, it's mostly uh, metals, mm. and and I'm I'm not actually uh, I, I don't know the specifics of that question. I've I've generally um, concerned myself primarily with with how we get water in the lake, and I just know that that uh, what is in that the the, the dust is no good, um, and and you can see it if you drive out out by the lake, um, especially on a, a windy day. 
you will see the dust blowing up in, into the air. And sometimes, uh, in fact, I, I saw pictures just from a couple of weeks ago, um, you could see the dust blowing out in in kind of uh, the northern North Salt Lake, uh, up in Davis County, in, in uh, this is northern Utah. And, and you can see the dust blowing into the population centers. Not good. Okay, I'll set aside my curiosity about what exactly is in that dust. Let's talk about water conservation, though. And I'm looking at a commentary that you had published in the Salt Lake Tribune, talking about uh, the proper incentives are going to do more than uh, you know a, he- a heavy-handed, you know, iron-fisted ap- approach. What is being done right now in terms of uh, conservation for water in the Great Salt Lake? So I would say that what is being done right now is a lot of good things, but they're still in the early stages. Um, and so what what is happening is that we are um, finding ways to incentivize water conservation. Now, most of the water that is bound for the Great Salt Lake uh, that, that gets diverted and used is used for agriculture. And that happens through uh, private water shares. So, so, the, so farmers, ranchers, they will own water shares. And, and so that's water shares of something like the Bear River, which is the biggest river that flows into the Great Salt Lake. And that is th- those water shares are an asset. They're an asset for the, the ranchers and farmers. And so what we're doing is, is we're, the state legislature is, is changing the laws to make it legal to, can, to lease that water for conservation. Um, and so you can, if you have a water share, you can use it, in, rather than growing alfalfa with it, you can leave it in the river and someone can pay you to keep it there. That used to actually not be legal, but now it is. Uh, I, should say, it, I shouldn't say not be legal, but it used to be that if, that if you weren't using it, you would lose it, use it or lose it. And, but now you can do that without losing that share. And th- so that, then the question remains, who's going to pay that money? Who's going to actually pay the farmer to keep water in the river? And so the state legislature is appropriating that money, and the legislature is actually leasing shares from farmers. I think that's a good idea. The The reason we're not quite seeing the effects of that yet is because this law has not been in place for more than six months, and we haven't even given a full water year yet. And But what you're also seeing are calls to implement the public, uh, what's called the public trust doctrine, which is an alternative to what is happening now. And that would be to, instead of paying money to lease the shares, it essentially just means you take them and, and, or you take parts of them. And I am suggesting in the piece that that is unwise and will actually have the opposite effect of what it's trying to accomplish. Is that comparable to eminent domain? In, in any way, I'm, I'm just I'm trying to connect dots here. As far as d- d- would would that uh, public uh, d- public trust be like? Well, the public needs this, or this is for the the greater good. Sorry, but we're taking it. It it is. In fact, that is typically how it is used. Public trust is is often used um, to not just not necessarily for conservation of water, but just like conservation of wildlife. And so eminent domain is used to protect wildlife. Um, and here it's being suggested that we use it to protect water for, for all the same reasons. Um, so yeah, it's it's very comparable. The, the only difference is that a water share, the water of a water share is actually still not owned 
by the shareholder. It's owned by the state. It's it's waters of the state of Utah. You have a right to you your your share is the right to use that water, and um, that's an interesting distinction, but one that in the end it doesn't really change the the uh, the policy implications or or the comparison to eminent domain. It, it's still quite comparable. Okay, so who needs to be convinced? Is it just legislators, or is this something that the public is going to have to be uh, persuaded to to embrace? As far as you know, the conservation efforts. I love the gentler approach, but um, who who's going to be the ones that have to to ultimately be persuaded? I think both. Um, one of my concerns is that uh, what the legislature, the Utah legislature, is is who is primarily concerned about it, and they have they are the most capable of. of of fixing this problem. Um, my concern is that we won't see results fast enough and we will be tempted to to use a heavier hand because of that. Um, and and so that that is one in that sense I am trying to convince policymakers. But yeah, also the public. I think there's kind of this sense, um, particularly people who are very uh, who follow this issue very closely here in Utah, there's a sense of why do we even have farmers? Why, why are they allowed to do this? <laughs> it's their property. It's their, it's their property. And, and, um, and, it, and if we really want to solve the problem, we need to work with them, not against them. No, I, I appreciate your approach and I appreciate uh, your tone on this. Who, who pushes the idea that now nah, we need to, to do this, you know, in, in the sense of, uh, what was it called again? The public trust doctrine. Who's who's public pushing trust. that the hardest? Is it, is it the politicians, or is there some some other lobby that pushes that? Um, I would say primarily it's. It, I was actually responding to an editorial by the Salt Lake Tribune, uh-huh. um, and and I think I think you see a lot of the um, kind of voices in Utah media who who are pushing that. And then um, I think there's I, I work with a lot of scientists on my day job, and I think that there's also kind of a sense who study this issue, this study the science side of this issue, who who I don't think understand some of the policy implications of ideas like this. Okay, for people who want to become better informed on this issue, and this I'm sure would include people outside of the Wasatch Front, are there resources you might direct them toward where they can get a good grasp of this subject? Um, I would point to if you want to to see more research on how private property actually incentivizes conservation, I would actually point them to an organization called PERC. It's the Property and Environment Research Center. It's headquartered in Bozeman, Montana. Um, they do a lot of really great work on this. Um, my my former uh, employer, the Center for Growth and Opportunity, they, they do some, not so much in the world of water, but in kind of private lands. Um, but then just, just to learn more about the water in Utah, um, I, I would say that all the, the Utah media outlets, Salt Lake Tribune and Deseret News, um, first and foremost, do, do a pretty good job of covering the basics of this issue. And they're always publishing uh, new you know, news on, on this issue. And there's always something to follow and read. Okay, again, we're talking with Micah Safeston. He is a communications and outreach coordinator at Utah Water Research Laboratory. Micah, great to visit with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 